Explore Domain Driven Design is offering hands-on and highly interactive workshops this year. Workshops will take place over the course of the last two weeks in October and the first three weeks in November. Instructors include industry leaders such as Scott Velaschen, Casper Gunya, Maureen Usenveld, Jessica Kerr, Kent Beck, Alberto Brandolini, and Paul Rayner. Why should you attend? No travel, no flight delays, passport control, or security checks. Worried about losing your luggage? Forget about it. Challenge your thinking in an open, sharing, and collaborative environment while accessing the workshops from the comfort of your own home or office. Take breaks as needed. These are strange times we are living in. Use the time you would be traveling to report to colleagues on key lessons and takeaways. Help them to expand the skills you've learned from these innovative, remote sessions and then incorporate them into your organization. Talk to your boss and tell them how you would benefit from attending online workshops from Explore DDD. Relay the cost savings you'll benefit from by not traveling this year. Visit exploreddd.com workshops and register today. Use the code EDDDGTC to get 10% off the price of any of the workshop tickets. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 207. I'm Damian Burke, and I'm here with Amy Newell. And I'm here with Jessica Kerr. Good morning! And I'm right here with Avdi Grimm. Hello! And I am here with our guest today, my favorite parrot aficionado, Chelsea Troy. Hey, how y'all doing? Chelsea writes code for mobile, the web, and machine learning models. She consulted with Pivotal Labs before launching her own firm to focus on clients who are saving the planet. Uh, advancing scientific research or helping underserved communities. Chelsea live streams her programming work on NASA-funded mobile and server projects, and she teaches mobile software development at the, at the University of Chicago. Uh, off the computer, you'll find Chelsea with a barbell or riding her e-bike. Gigi? Gigi. Gigi. That's right. Above and beyond all that, Chelsea is also one of my longtime favorite writers on all things software, especially all the... Uh, a lot of the social factors and, and human factors around software development. Uh, so I'm very, very happy to have you on the show. But also super technical stuff, data science, automation. What did you implement? You implemented Raft the other day. Oh, yeah. By the other day, yeah. I mean. There's like this long, long, 13, I think it was 14 posts. It's about the Raft distributed consensus algorithm. Yeah, implemented in Python. So. Yeah, I should I should be clear about that. It's just that my some of my favorite posts are the... Uh, like the, the, the team dynamics ones, but you have an incredible technical output. Well, we wish the social stuff were as easy as Raft. <laughs> easy. Oh, man. Raft, the understandable distributed consensus algorithm, which makes you wonder what all the others are like. <laughs> Is that anything like the gentle introduction to Haskell? Um, Probably. Probably <laughs> approximately the same. There's just certain situations where it's going to be a roller coaster one way or the other. And I think that's probably one of them. Uh, so, Chelsea, I can probably think of at least like half a dozen superpowers you have off the top of my head uh, just from past conversations. But what would you say is your superpower? I would say I don't know about superpower, but the thing that I've been working on a lot lately and seeing a lot of progress with has been my software detective work. So 
a lot of the work that I do lately has been with uh, grant-funded organizations. And the thing about a grant-funded organization is that sometimes there's funding for the project and sometimes there's not funding for the project, which means that it's not uncommon. And I think this is the case even outside of grant-funded organizations. It's not uncommon for there to be context loss on the project, often in those particular cases, because there was one developer working on it and that developer is no longer available. And so the next developer effectively needs to national treasure their way to figuring out how the software works and how to use it before they're going to be able to update it, maintain it, deploy it, any of those types of things. And I think that that is perhaps the most extreme case of context loss when there was one person who ever knew and that person is gone. But I think that context loss happens at any organization, maybe to lesser degrees than that, where there's a particular thing in the software, it works this way, nobody currently on the project is really sure why, and a lot of times that context loss engenders some fear about touching various parts of the system. And so the skill that I've been working on the most lately is a skill that I've come to sort of colloquially call forensic software analysis because it makes me feel like I'm on CSI. But I go in there and I've gotten a lot better at being able to figure out what's going on, how to figure out what's going on to get into an investigative mode that helps me determine what's working. And I have found that those skills also transfer to debugging on almost any stack. They tend to be language agnostic skills that I can use when something's wrong in the software, to figure out how to narrow down the cause. And once I have the cause narrowed down, once I have a tight feedback loop around figuring out what's wrong, then I can try a whole lot more stuff in much more rapid succession. Because I went slower in the beginning, I can end up finding and solving the problem faster in the end. Where can I buy your book? Oh my gosh, I wish I had a book. I don't have a book yet. One of these days, one of these days, if there's a publisher listening who wants to toss me in advance, I'm (laughs) totally interested. So let me know. But it's, yeah, it's been a bit of an interesting kind of journey because I think the vast majority, this is what I think. This is the opinion that I'll, that I'll one day get Hillary for, maybe not, is that a lot of software tutorials, a lot of the education around software and a lot of the conversations around software assume that the software works and assume that we know how the software works. So a lot of tutorials, and I've ri- I've done a lot of tutorials myself, I'm a teacher, and the truth is you don't go in there, I don't go in there and like on the first shot do a tutorial that works, almost ever. Usually if I do a tutorial and it's a smooth tutorial, I have practiced that at least once before. When I'm doing live coding, if something works seamlessly, I have definitely practiced that like 19 times minimum. That's most of the demonstrations of writing code that we see. But that's not the way that writing code works in reality. In my experience, we spend so much of our time at the edge of what we know. Because if it had already been done exactly the way we need to do it before, nobody would pay us a lawyer's rate to do it this way. They just use it the way that it had been done before. And so, there's this whole skill set of, of operating on the edge of our knowledge where we don't know what's going on that I think we tend to kind of ig- ignore to some degree and we don't necessarily talk about it as much such that then when we spend time on it while we're writing code, we feel like we're doing a bad job. We feel like we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing because what we're supposed to be doing is cranking features at top speed. And in my experience, 
once you're no longer in a greenfield application where you're the only one that wrote it, the amount of time that you spend doing that just goes way, way down. And there's something to be said for acknowledging, I have to spend some period of time in investigative mode on this code. Once that's acknowledged, we can work on improving at that mode. And once we're improving at that mode, at least in my experience, my ability to resolve real problems in code bases has become so much better. And my confidence in my ability to walk in and help somebody with a longstanding bug is so much higher. Can we do a quick round of the panelists of what percentage of time y'all expect to spend in investigative mode when coding in a real production system? I mean, this is such an amazing idea. In our education systems, we assume that the code is working and that we know how it works. In real life, of course, neither of those things are true. Because if those things were true, we wouldn't have work to do. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. I love it. I I think that, like, it's hard to say that I don't spend all my time in that mode. Nice. Possibly unique among the panelists. I don't presently write any code for, for my work. I'm, I'm 100% a manager or business cat. I obviously think about this problem a lot. Most of the people reporting to me are working in a old code base now. Like, you know, it's, it's over a decade old. So they themselves are, are spending a lot of time in investigative mode. It's not so different from the work that I do, like, investigating, you know, sort of longstanding bugs in sort of human interaction either, right? (laughs) If everybody worked together well all the time, I would not have a job. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Additionally, the thing that you said, Damien, about, well, I think that both of you said, like, you talk to software developers, and most of us will admit quietly, like, oh, yeah, the everything is trash, burn it to the ground. It's amazing. Any of it works. It's held together with duct tape and bailing wire. Uh, Amy, uh, what you just said just reminded me, I, I watched a talk recently by uh, Einar Host, uh, where he says, well, what we have is not technical debt, what we have is organizational debt. Yeah, absolutely. So given that everything that we do is broken, and we don't know how it works, and now that we now that we can recognize that and accept it, Chelsea, what do we do next? <laughs> awesome. You know, it's a good question. So my thought, the way that I characterize it is like this. I think basically we've established that we have two modes. We have sort of this build mode, this productivity mode, and then we also have this investigative mode. And the goals of those two modes are different. And the goal of the first one is to crank some features to get something done, to make something work, to make something happen. An investigative mode, the product of the investigative mode is not working code. It is instead a tighter feedback loop. The product of investigative mode is a series of places where you know that the problem isn't happening and a smaller window where you see that the problem is happening. And I find that when I am able to acknowledge that and switch from trying to get it to work into trying to figure out where I don't even need to know. I don't need to know why it's not working. I don't need to know how it's not working. I just need to know where it's not working. And then I can figure out the rest from there. And I find that that helps to provide a sense of progress in debugging, even if we haven't necessarily found it yet. And I like to draw an analogy here to a detective. I'm sure we've, uh, we've all seen crime shows. My latest favorite is Lucifer. That's not, that's neither true crime nor just 
Don't watch anything on Lucifer for accuracy, anything. Nothing you see in that show is the way it works in real life. But the idea of the TV show is that the premise itself is going to sound ridiculous. The devil comes up from hell to live in Los Angeles and solves crimes on a voluntary basis. And the rest of it is about as realistic as the premise makes it sound. But the point is, we watch these crime shows and what we're interested in is the process of solving the crime. We think of it as progress when we see interviews with witnesses and clues and thinking and that kind of stuff. But then when we're writing code, we think all of all of that is like like trash work that doesn't really count as working. And the only thing that's going to count is when we find the fix. But when I'm thinking about myself as being in investigative mode, I count that investigation as progress that I have made. I know that I have this issue where I've got this React Native app where people can classify images from the surface of Mars and they can draw boxes around stuff and delete those boxes on iOS and they can draw boxes on Android, but they can't delete the boxes. Why can't they? Why does it work on one platform and not on another? As you may imagine, this is an actual thing that I'm dealing with right now. So I go into the code and I start figuring out where the problem could be. All right, the outputs at this point on Android and iOS are the same. The outputs at this point on Android and iOS are the same. And I move further down. All right, the output on on iOS now is this index of zero. But on Android, for some reason, this is undefined. Why is it undefined specifically on Android? And to get to that point, I'm guessing you had to set up a debugging environment in both iOS and Android. And how many days did that take? So it helps that I have a little bit of familiarity with this environment at this point. But yes, it is a little bit of a thing. So I was joking about this the other day that Java reminds me a little bit of a puppy. It has very specific uses in our life. It's relatively easy to train. All you need is like a soft rope and maybe some treats. JavaScript, this is a React Native app. JavaScript is a little bit more like a velociraptor. (laughs) It's so versatile. When you really need the thing to work anywhere, when you need it to be able to operate in any environment, a velociraptor is who you're going to, right? But the thing is, it's going to take a lot more than a nylon rope and some treats to discipline a velociraptor. And in that spirit, this React Native app that I'm working on, you can put console statements if you want to, but unless you put them in very specific places in a React Native app, they just will not show up. The console statements will not print, but if you throw exceptions, that will show up. Regardless of what thread you're on, regardless if it's async, whatever happens. And so that's my like my Velociraptor chain is that I know... (laughs) If I just, when we get to this method, throw, oh, you are, have reached this, you have reached this method exception. Can I go back and pull a thread here? Talking when you were talking about the difference between kind of like writing code, shipping features fast versus investigation and how many engineers will consider the investigation piece somehow not real work, which I see a lot, not just around investigation, but like in engineering, we can have this very narrow definition of what our real work is. Mm -hmm. And I want to link this to what I think you were hoping to talk about on this podcast and that I did my homework over by reading your uh, about it, which is that what you're talking about in those posts in terms of thinking broadly about engineers work as being considering that sort of the consequences broadly of their actions in the workplace. 
place and kind of working towards a better world. Yeah. I, I think that's not too far of a, of a thread pull there. No, no. Yeah. I think this makes sense. So this is the way that I've been thinking about this lately. And like I said, I've been focused kind of on this uh, detective work because I'm interested in figuring out how to build more kind of robust, resilient systems. That's where all of the work has been lately with, with the distributed consensus algorithm and working on debugging and learning about software risk analysis, different ways you can test systems, that kind of thing. But the impetus for all of that work has been to think more systematically about the work I do. Because when you start out as a software engineer, I think you start out by thinking on the level of this method, this class, maybe this interaction between these classes. That's sort of the scope that you're thinking about. And as you rise in seniority, you're thinking about maybe more whole modules within an application and then the whole application itself. And then as you rise through the senior up to the staff level, you're thinking about how this application is going to interact with other applications in our system. And once you get to principle, you're thinking about how all of the systems at the organization work together to accomplish the goals of the organization. That's your responsibility as the principal is to be thinking in that, in that larger sense to understand the context. I find it really interesting that we understand how to think at these broader and broader levels of abstraction as we rise in seniority. But there is some, I, w I don't know if it's a stigma so much as um, more indifference in the software engineering community to thinking at the broadest level to me, which is the impact that the software that we're putting into the world is going to have on the people who interact with it, on the, the people it's supposed to benefit, the people that it affects, and to what degree we can impact the system that produces that software and the system that it ends up impacting. So when I roll onto a project, I'm thinking about the technical, how this is going to play into things. But something that I think it's also incumbent upon us is in this software that we're writing, what social systems have contributed to the need for this software? Are those social systems that I'm comfortable playing into that, that my values align with? And when we put this software into the world, it's going to have an impact back on the system that influenced how it was built. And is that impact something that I am prepared to sign my name on and say, yes, I wrote code that directly impacted the way that this now works for a whole bunch of people. And so that's something that I think a lot about in my work. And when I'm taking clients, it's something that I think a lot about too, is like, is the impact that my work is going to have and the impact that I want my work to have. And when I look back, how do I want to have used my influence as somebody with the technical privilege that I have and as somebody with the rhetorical abilities that I have? That's some degree of influence, I suppose. And I want to think about how I've used that. And I think it's valuable for engineers to do in general, anybody in technology, anybody in general. But in my specific, I speak to engineers because I'm an engineer and that's what I know. So as you move up these layers of abstraction, things get a lot more difficult. Things get fuzzier. Uh, and when you, when you get to the level of your customers and the social structure that created the product and the company and, and the social structure that's created by it, there are no obvious answers. I don't know about everybody else. I got into this business for obvious answers. Um, so how, how does a person like that, like, like I am, like, how do I, how do I, how do engineers adjust to that, that sort of problem? 
it's tough, you know, and to some degree it involves in order to figure out how to do this, we're, we're dealing with a system with so much ambiguity, like you're saying. And one of the things that we do as software engineers is attempt to impose a system on ambiguity and find a model that is perhaps not 100% right, but is somehow useful for helping us deal with that ambiguity. And that's effectively what I've tried to do in this regard as well. So when when I'm thinking about the different ways that I interact with software, there are a couple of different ways that I do it, right? I write software. That's one thing that I do. I write about software, which includes to some degree an influence on other people who write software. And I also consume software. I purchase software products. I purchase things through software products. My money is going somewhere. And once again, because I write or and, and to some degree, I guess, speak, the decisions that I make about what I purchase also kind of spread to other people. For example, there'll probably be at least one person who checks out the TV show Lucifer as a result of this episode. And to that person, I want to say to you directly, I did not endorse that show. I just mentioned it. I did not endorse it. <laughs> the point is that the influence is there. And so I think about that when I'm thinking about companies and how I want to act in accordance with my values. I tend to leave aside the question of what people's values are, reason being that our values change over time. I'm always going to have more to learn. I'm always going to have more to think about. And I reserve the right to be able to change my mind about things as I learn more. So regardless of what somebody's values are, I think it's helpful to think about how to use these different types of influence that we have in accordance with those values. And I tend to divide it into four categories. So the four kinds of influence that I think about myself having on tech are, first of all, my patronage, where my money goes. And then second, my patronage advocacy. So where I convince other people to put their money. If I talk about a product that I really like, maybe somebody buys it. So in some respects, my patronage advocacy is, is more valuable really than my patronage because I only have so much money to give. But if I convince other people, then that is a multiplicity of the amount that I could give. And maybe even more influential than patronage advocacy is where I put my talent, who I work for. So I distinguish talent from labor, not based on one being more rarefied and requiring more training and being more valuable, but based primarily on the margins. So labor, I tend to think of as something that's relatively low margin for the company. For example, when somebody drives for Lyft, they make about 70%, let's say of the amount of money that the customer pays. So that's relatively low margin for Lyft. Meanwhile, a software engineer for Lyft, so let's say that they're part of a team of 10 that ships a feature that increases Lyft's revenue by a half a percent over the course of the year. At that point, the amount of value that each of those engineers has brought to Lyft, even counting the fact that they're only making the 30% cut, is easily double what any one of them is making in a year. The margin is much, much higher for the company on that engineering work, which is how I distinguish the talent from the labor. Is one of them is an essential service the business doesn't exist without. The other one is also essential, but not in the way that the business wouldn't exist without it, rather in the way that the margins for the business on that work are so high that any individual person who does that work automatically has more influence by leaving and therefore 
has more leeway in a lot of cases to say things about how the work is done and what work is done. So the final kind of influence, which I think is is more powerful than providing my talent, is my talent advocacy. And this is more powerful for the same reason that patronage advocacy is is more influential than patronage. If I get three people to buy something, that's three times as much as the money that I spent. If I get three people to join an organization that I'm working for, then that's three times the talent that I could provide, presumably usually more than three times the talent, because a lot of my friends are a lot more talented than I am, of course. But because of that multiplicative effect, my talent advocacy, who I recommend somebody work for is like the most powerful thing that I can use as a software engineer. And because of those things going in increasing order of impact, I am increasingly careful about how I use each of them. So in some cases, and we know that capitalism is an extremely powerful system that we're all kind of like stuck in for the moment, right? There are certain cases where like I need something and I have to give money to an organization whose practices I don't completely agree with. Avdi, you have a great example of this with like cell phone companies. Cell phone companies each have a series of customers. Most of the customer lists for any given cell phone company include, or rather service provider, include organizations that I would rather not have service. But at some point, I have to call my mother, right? And so my at some point, my patronage has to go somewhere where I don't necessarily 100% with, agree with everything that's happening at the organization. And that's a decision that I have to make but I can make it with the understanding that I'm more careful about each of these different levels of influence. Would I specifically recommend a particular service to people? That's going to require a more rigorous understanding of their values on my part. If I'm going to go and work somewhere, that's going to be a big jump in the amount of rigor that I'm applying to my understanding of their values and determining whether their values align with mine. And even more than that, who I'm recommending somebody go work for and refer people into is going to be an even more rigorous determination on like, to what degree can I help this organization from an ethically stable standpoint? This notion of, of the most powerful thing that you can be doing in your tech life around is what companies are you advocating at, that other people work for? It's really powerful to me that something as someone who does a lot of hiring and also like advises a lot of other people about like where they might fit in also feels like very high leverage to me of, you know, I'm going to send you here and I'm going to like steer you away from there, either because there are things I know about that culture that are non-ideal or because of the work that that company is producing. So so here's my question. So you you built out this amazing framework from patronage to to advocacy to labor to talent to talent advocacy uh which is which is a great way of of saying exactly how much uh leverage and impact you can have. And so this is going to be a difficult question because because you mentioned you didn't want to talk about people's didn't want to talk about specific values, but making the connection between values and the work you do as an engineer or the, or the people you, you point people to work for, how do you draw that? How do you draw that connection? Yeah, that is, that's a good question. So I think that one thing that has helped me a lot in thinking about this is understanding the role that 
privilege plays and the degree to which we can comply or not comply with the system that we are steeped in. So I will say one peculiarity about this entire system with the patronage and the talent advocacy and all this is that the whole system assumes market capitalism. Like, let me just say that podcast listeners, none of this works outside market capitalism the same way that it does in market capitalism. And the reason it's valuable for us as engine, well, I think all of us are states-based engineers here on the podcast right now anyway, is that that's very much like a cartoon, the system that we are working with here in the States specifically. And I think to some degree with tech globally as well. And the thing about a system like that is that there are situations in which we have choices and there are situations in which we don't have choices. And there are situations in which engineers have more choices than people in like a profession where there's not the same ratio of people who do the job to people to openings for the job, or there's not the same uh, margin that a company is making off of each and every one of us. And acknowledging that helps me kind of think about how I can do this work, because I can focus on using my leverage in the places where I have the highest leverage and prioritizing that, essentially playing to my strengths. And so I can give some examples of this. Like with regard to work specifically, the thing about large tech companies, you know, is that a lot of them are involved in practices that are hard to agree with. But there's a question of the total impact that we can have, maybe working at one of those places or purchasing from one of those places. So A good example is that like, I don't want to name any names on the podcast, but there are certain types of software that are just like considered the standard that we use for collaboration because it's free and everybody can kind of work in it. And there's a trade-off to be thought about with regard to like, how hard is it going to be for me to switch to a different system? How hard is it going to be for me to move literally all 190 activists that we're working with onto a different system versus the one that they know and they understand? And in those kinds of situations, there is a calculation to be made about the amount of impact that we can have. But I think that the position that we're in affects the amount of impact that we can have. So I'll give another example. I was talking to a team at a company that has uh, a contract with ICE. I was talking to this team a while back about a product that they have that has maybe nothing to do with with ICE itself. But there's a question of like, if you're working on this product, does that therefore free up time and attention for folks to think about about something that, that helps a more morally reprehensible organization? And so that's one of the arguments that that I think that I think software companies have to think about is like, when we sell to an organization that is keeping kids in cages on the border or whatever. Even if the software they're they're using isn't like whatever, keep kids in cages dot Lee or something like that. Maybe if it's not directly we don't we're not sure the the degree to which to which it is directly related to these things that we don't agree with, what can we do? And I think that that's absolutely something that tech companies need to think about. Tech companies are in a powerful position to think about that individuals working at those tech companies are not always in as powerful a position. There are things, of course, that engineers can do in those situations. They can leave. Some engineers have the power and the privilege to be able to leave in those situations and know that they're going to be able to land at another company. 
That's not necessarily the case for everyone, but that doesn't mean that those people necessarily agree with the practices of that company. And so this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately is like, what is incumbent on those with a privilege in a situation where they might be talking to somebody without? And something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is like, to what degree, rather than judging the decision that another engineer has made about how to allocate their patronage or their advocacy, uh, or their talent or their talent advocacy, like, rather than judge the way other people are allocating their influence in those four areas, what influence do I have that I could help them in areas where they can't necessarily do that? So back to the example, I'm talking to this company, they make this product that I use in my teaching practice, because it's a product that I have used in my teaching practice since long before this contract came to light. And it's a product that it would be tough for me to switch myself and everybody who uses it off of this product, because that's what everybody's used to. It's sort of considered the default. That having been said, these people are in a situation where they work on this product. The status quo is that they work on this product and they have to change the status quo in order for that to not happen. The status quo I've discovered is something that's really, really powerful in making decisions about our privilege. If the status quo is on our side, we don't have to argue with anybody, right? We just have to sort of throw enough sand in the gears that nothing really changes and we don't have to be that confrontational. That's why being confrontation avoidant is like such a powerful tool for white supremacy is that White folks are the people who have the power and the status quo keeps them there. And so they don't they don't have to fight to keep that power. They just have to be like kind of conflict avoidant and the system stays in place. And so we see that same thing in organizations where the status quo is already something. Changing the status quo is a lot harder than keeping the status quo. And when the status quo is on the side of somebody already works in a place, there's a lot required of that person in order to get out of that situation, which is not to say that they shouldn't or that they don't want to. It's to say that there's a lot there. Whereas they're interviewing me as a customer about their user interface in this situation. They want to make sure that the user interface is something that their customers want to use. As a customer, my opinion matters to this organization. It matters in a different way than the, than the employees' opinions matter. Because for me to break the status quo and move to a different product, is much easier than for an employee to break the status quo and move to a different place of employment. That just happens to be the way that full-time employment works. My opinion matters to them enough that they have arranged for four people, instead of writing code today, they're meeting with me to find out what I think about this product. That tells me that I have some influence in this situation. And so when they ask me the question, what alternatives have you considered? What features of this product keep you on this product versus other products, if you considered switching, why would that be? I know that they're referring maybe specifically to the UI and the features that belong in the product, but that's my opportunity to say, I like the product itself. I'm aware that the company contracts with ICE. It's incumbent on me every time I talk about this company or the way that I work with this company to talk also about the fact that the company contracts with ICE. Clearly, that's not a comfortable position for a customer to be in. That would be the primary reason that I would switch. And in those situations, what I've often found is that we're not talking about a monolithic organization where all of the employees agree with the decision to contract with ICE. It's a situation where the employees are stuck 
and don't necessarily have the level of influence that it would take to single-handedly get the company to stop contracting with ICE. But I can be helpful to them in that regard because I'm a customer. And in order to stay in business, a company has to care about what customers think. Because I have some rhetorical ability, I also have the ability to write down exactly what I think as a customer in a way that could be passed along to leadership. And often, people at the company will ask for that. They'll say, you know, we're trying to fight this fight on the inside. That's helpful to some degree. We also need this fight fought from the outside. So if you were willing to put effort into explaining exactly why you would consider switching products, that's something that you can do where your influence is valuable. Our influence is valuable insofar as that we can get this in front of somebody with actual power in a way that you can't because you're outside the organization. And so your influence from outside the organization as a customer is valuable because you can talk about why you would switch because the status quo for you is much weaker and you could switch easily. Our influence comes from the fact that we have a direct line to the people who would care about your opinion on that. And so we can effectively work together with our influences combined to be able to create an impact that neither of us alone would be able to do by ourselves. I'm interested in hearing more about something that you started to get into it, I think, with talking about how your individual action can support some people who are inside of an org and how people with more power in the industry can support others with less power in sort of moving things in a direction most of what you've talked about, and I know that this is, is pretty deliberate, is about sort of individual actions. But I do think that there are some problems that I guess I'm curious to hear. Do you think that there are some problems that, that need to be solved more with collective action? I think so. You know, I think that we've we've seen the limitations of individual action in tech a lot over the past couple of years. We've seen situations where a company contracted with ICE five to seven of their top most publicly profiled engineers all left over it. The company contracts with ICE doubles down on their position and insists that like somehow it is in line with their values as a company to maintain this contract for like some business reason that doesn't have to do with keeping kids in cages. One has to assume, or we've seen situations where somebody who is well known for being an internal activist at one of these large companies has worked and worked for 10 or 12 years and everything looks from outside the company to be the picture of effectiveness from them. And then you find out this person has set an ultimatum and this person has decided to leave because ultimately there's only so much that one person can do. Or we've even seen situations where organizers attempted to organize collective action and then the company took action on that, like the way that uh, the engineers who helped to organize the Google walkout found themselves six months to a year later, not so mysteriously no longer employed by the company. So we see that there are, there are definite limitations. And unfortunately, when we put ourselves in a public and, and direct opposition to something that a company with power is doing... We're often exposing ourselves to risk in those circumstances. And when an individual is sort of singled out and exposed to risk in those ways, it doesn't succeed in the way that we would hope it would. And in those situations, 
we 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 see the limitations and realize that collective action is going to be necessary in a lot of these cases combined with individual action and combined with individual influence but i think the unique thing about individual influence is that we have a lot of trouble wielding it when we are specifically focused on um, confrontation and, and confrontation is valuable but confrontation has a specific place and it only gets us so far. The value of confrontation, of course, is demonstrating not necessarily to the individual you're confronting, but to third parties. I forget who said this, and I'll make sure that it's in the show notes. But the quote goes, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Essentially saying that like, when we confront somebody, usually in that exact moment, their mind is not going to change because this defensive reaction goes up. Right. And when that defensive reaction goes up, it can be extremely difficult to change people's mind. And I have to specifically work on being open to changing my mind when confronted because my instinct, too, even though I know that this happens, I'm not immune to getting defensive and shutting down. And so the value of confrontation is less usually in changing the mind of the person we're confronting, but rather in demonstrating to other people who are watching this confrontation that something that happened in this confrontation isn't cool and people aren't just going to let it slide. So that's the value of confrontation. There's also avoidance, which is the other method that we usually use. And the value of avoidance usually is honestly biding our time. It's waiting in a position of more influence such that we're going to be able to have some impact on this system that we don't necessarily have right now. And I think that there's something to be said for avoidance, but I think it's also easy for us to use it to justify a general conflict avoidant mindset and I'm biding my time until the right time comes. Well, when is the right time going to come? How long are we going to be complicit with things that we don't agree with, such that ultimately we're going to have enough power that we're going to be able to say something? When's that going to be? And at what point are we just complicit? You know, at what point are we just complicit and telling ourselves that it's fine because later we're going to do something? To what degree can we procrastinate using our influence in that respect before it's no longer practical and is now an excuse? That's a question that I think about a lot. And what I've focused on in this regard lately is figuring out alternatives that are not confrontation and that are also not avoidance, that are something where we're a way to get around the defensive reaction and effectively persuade others and convince others and change, shift the Overton window of what ex is acceptable in a more ethical direction by means, not, not necessarily instead of confrontation where it's useful, not necessarily instead of avoidance where it's useful, but rather in addition to those two things. How do we go about convincing folks? How do we affect change in an organization where we don't agree with everything that's happening? To what degree can our influence be best used by assisting in a way that demonstrates that we're able to talk about these issues in a non-judgmental fashion that'll open people to thinking about how we might change the way that these organizations operate, understanding the limitations that they're under and figuring out how to change those over time. One of the things that I think about a lot, and this is going to bring American politics into it, so I'm sorry, but is that we see the, the realities of a, of a, of a winner-take-all, first-past-the-post type of election system is that what you end up with, the fallout of that is going to be typically a two-party type of a situation because nobody else can get, there's no representative voting system to allow 
somebody else to get a toehold such that you're usually going to end the two-party system and these two parties shifting their viewpoints according to basically what 50% of the population is prepared to get in line with. Because as soon as that 50-50 balance shifts, the parties shift to get back towards that 50-50. If any one gets ahead, then they're both shifting, right? in a direction. And we've seen that over time. We've seen that over centuries, right? We have these two parties in the United States, we call them the Democratic and the Republican parties. And there are situations where say 60 years ago, like a position of one party today was totally the position of the other party 60 years ago on this specific issue. And so a lot of of social change has to do with broad attitudes around stuff as opposed to specific platforms, because we see Power changes hands every like four, eight, 12 years or so between these two parties in government. We have this tricameral situation where there are sort of three areas of government and their party shifts between red and blue, red and blue over the course of 100 years. But that doesn't mean that society hasn't changed in that period of time. What it means is that the parties have shifted to embrace different goals because society and what people are willing to vote for has shifted as well. So I think about that a lot with regard to tech as well, is that we have these kind of power systems, sure, but those power systems to some degree have to abide the slower changing but ultimately powerful undercurrent of what the whole of society is going to accept. There are statements that politicians could make in the 40s with impunity that they can't make with impunity, or at least nobody would have mentioned them in the 40s. Whereas now, if they were to mention them, it would be a big deal. And that's something that I think about a lot in tech is, to what degree can I influence the larger, more slower moving current of what we are prepared to accept in such a way that norms 25 years from now are more ethical than norms are right now. What what can we do about that? That's something that I think about a lot, and I can't purport to have all the answers on that for sure. But that's sort of what I find myself thinking about more than immediate changes to contract lists these days. Yeah. Uh, you know, that makes me think of, we have seen shifts of that kind in software over the past several decades. Uh, one that always comes to mind for me is is the shift to open source software, where the norm has shifted from we don't give away software, we don't give away our intellectual property to to we try to build as much stuff on open source as we can. And companies are cooler if they give away lots of of software. And you know while while the explicitly named open source movement was an attempt to depoliticize a software movement, originally that was a political, an explicitly political project, and it succeeded. Yeah, yeah. interesting to think about open source in that regard. Damien, what were you going to say? No, I just wanted to to call out how incredibly valuable that framework is. Instead of instead of moving a politician, a platform, a company, a policy, uh, an election, moving the actual norms of society is slower and more difficult. You know, it's it's hurting it's hurting planets instead of bison, but it's so much more powerful. And of course, a person who is uh, prolifically uh, lexical as, as, as you are, uh, that's something that can, that is, uh, in your wheelhouse, I think. I like that term prolifically lexical. Yeah. That was kind of embarrassing. I can't believe I said that. I know like that's it. fantastic. That's like now like goals, hashtag goals, prolifically lexical sounds much better than talks a lot. 
which is how I think of I, and I'm sorry, I'm not. I, it's true. I write too ding dang much. I talk too ding dang much. I've started live streaming a lot lately on code. I don't know. I'm always shocked when people watch. I'm like, why does anybody want to watch me narrate myself writing code? How interesting could this possibly be? By capitalizing on the fact that people are interested in that and that you, you do, because of that, you have the opportunity to shift things because people want to hear you. And the more visible you are and the more seen you are and the more heard you are, the more the norms move towards you are. To use an example of far afield from where we are, uh, I live in Southern California. Uh, I have a Southern Californian accent. Most of the United States has a very close to a Southern Californian accent. Most of the world speaks very much like Southern Californians because we make television and movies here. Yeah, that's a really good point. Oh, wow. That just blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely the case. You know, it's funny that you should mention that because I was talking to, um, so I sing, I have a, a singing lesson on, on Friday morning. So that happened earlier today and we're working on a song right now. It's called hurricane by band of heathens. If anybody's interested, it's, uh, the, the band is great. They're from Austin, Texas. The song is about resilience. Ultimately, it's a song about resilience and the, uh, story of the song is about this Cajun man. You presume from the story, it sounds like he's like an older Cajun man from a previous generation, kind of, who uh, who grew up on the Pontchartrain. Pontchartrain is a lake in Louisiana. It's in southeast Louisiana. Now, my my father was born and raised in Louisiana, to entirely southwestern Louisiana family. So I come from some Cajun roots. And I'm going to tell you what, the lyrics of this song, it's a, the band is from Texas. I do love the song. I can also acknowledge that the lyrics of the song are completely not accurate to the way this old Cajun crab would talk. They are so inaccurate to the way the crab would talk that if you change the song to make it sound the way that he would, the whole meter and rhyme scheme of the song doesn't work anymore. I have tried it. The rhyme scheme depends on pronouncing things in effectively a Southern California accent, despite the fact that we're supposedly talking about a man who has not left the shore of the Pontchartrain his entire life. And it's just funny to me to sing that song, because as I sing it, I find myself, as I sing this song about my homeland, I find myself shifting into the accent, into the voice that this man would talk in. And I have to pull myself back and be like, stop, the song's not going to work if you go too far in that direction. You cannot do this, or else the whole chorus is going to be off and we're going to be screwed. So... It's an interesting sort of internal battle that I fight with my instincts on how to talk like this guy and how to sing the song, quote unquote, correctly. Always a challenge between what we know is right and what fits in the system we're in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, it's like almost time. So, so we, should, we should wrap up. At the end of the show, we usually do a round where everyone can reflect on one thing that struck them in the conversation, something they're going to look up further, or some point that they didn't get in earlier. This is fine, too. Who wants to reflect? Kelsey, when you were talking about confrontation and avoidance and the reasons we, we might choose one or the other at any given time and the space 
in between in terms of, of influence. And I, I started thinking some about the ways that people can be both confrontational and avoidant at the same time. For example, like work slowdowns or just ways that people with less power can nevertheless kind of, you know, throw sand in the gears of things that they don't agree with without being confrontational. So I want to think about that more. I'm going to pretend that this is one reflection somehow. So if it doesn't make any sense, that's why. I really like, we we started with this idea of, uh, I think you used the phrase software detective work or forensics. And it really opened my mind to the breadth of the work uh, in tech and how we have all these different roles, you know, QA and and acceptance and, and business analysis and engineering and how so much of it is learning, discovering knowledge, creating a shared understanding, figuring things out, and that the lines between them are incredibly fuzzy. Uh, and then that expands out to the broader system, like of how of how what we do impacts larger systems, and then how we can actually use that to move entire societies, and that like that is actually possible and something we can work towards. That really did sound like one thing. I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> yes, that was beautiful. Great, great uh, summation of the show. Abdi, do you have anything? No, I'm still um, I'm still chewing on all that. Something that Amy said earlier in the conversation about the fact that, like, if everybody's working together well, then then you don't have a job as a manager. And relating that to the fact that, like, if all software worked and we understood how it worked, none of us have jobs. It makes me think a lot about the degree to which, like, our fallibility creates the positions that we get to occupy and what that means about the grace that we need to have for the fallibility of other people. Because, like, to some degree, we depend on that fallibility. Wow. Yeah. There's two parts to that. The mistake has to have happened, and the person has to be willing to to tell us that this thing is wrong. And that also means it's incumbent on us to have grace, too. Because if we're not prepared to do that, why would anybody admit to us that they had made a mistake? And how would our help be valuable if nobody can admit it to us without us making them feel terrible? Yeah. Can I just remark that, Chelsea, you sing too? That's ridiculous. And you're like super CrossFit person and tech and leadership and systems and social change. And also you're hilarious. And I am very happy to spend time with you because you're awesome. (laughs) I should have you write my bio for my dating profile. You'd be much better at it. (laughs) Basically, all I've written on there is like, if you bring me a latte at the right time, I'm putty in your hands. That's the only key. I'm very easy. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, that's good. A fabulous episode. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah thank thanks. you. This was great. I love chatting with y'all always. <laughs> thank you so much, Chelsea. All right. And I would be remiss if I did not note, um, if you want to continue this conversation, please join us on the Greater Than Code Slack, uh, which you can get onto by donating as little as a dollar to our Patreon. And uh, you can join uh, other listeners and the panelists and often the the guests as well uh, for a lot of really cool conversations.